This episode deals with scenes of a graphic nature and depictions of child murder. Listener discretion is advised. It's a clear reminder that some things are out of your control no matter what you do or where you live. You know, why would you pick that? Uh, We think the way the body was situated, that whoever laid it there, somebody wanted it, that body found. Hosted by Emily G. Thompson and Eileen McFarlane, this is The Shattered Window. For five long and woeful days, the community rallied together in a desperate attempt to find Jacqueline. They searched mile after mile, handing out flyer after flyer, and questioned neighbour after neighbour. Nobody witnessed her abduction. Nobody saw or heard anything out of the ordinary. Nothing in the house was in disarray. There were no clues left behind. It seemed as though Jacqueline had been snatched up from her bed by an unseen force, without a morsel of evidence left behind. Investigators combed the area again and again, but failed to come up with any evidence as to where Jacqueline could be. The search had been concentrated in and around 148th Place and the surrounding woodland areas, but the investigation was about to head six miles northeast to Blue Island, Blue Island is one of the oldest communities in Cook County. Immigrants were among the first to settle in the northern Chicago town, and it continued to be a melting pot of ethnicities throughout the 20th and 21st century. At approximately 5.45pm on the 14th of September 1988, Michael Chapman was rolling into a parking space in the rear parking lot of the Islander Apartments at 1912 Canal Street, Blue Island where he was a resident. Located at the back of this parking lot was a small wooded area looking over Calumet Canal, which links the region of South Chicago, Illinois, to Gary, Indiana. Mr. Chapman parked his car near the dumpsters. As he and his wife were exiting the car, they immediately noticed a putrid smell radiating in the cool autumn air. Mr. Chapman said that he couldn't identify the smell, but he knew that it wasn't coming from the nearby dumpster. As he glanced over towards the source of the smell would be, he pulled back a bush to see what it was. Here he saw something wrapped in a covering among the tall weeds behind the dumpsters. As he got closer, he saw what was a head and an arm and ran inside to call the Blue Island Police. Officers at the scene located the heavily decomposed body of a small girl approximately 12 feet from the edge of the parking lot and 200 yards from the bank of the canal. We spoke to Joseph Kaufman about that day. Um, me, and, me and my partner, uh, Doug Hoagland, were, we were detectives. And at the time, we were actually separated. He was in one location, I was in another location when the radio call came out of a body found behind the Broadway apartment. So we both headed there right away. And we both headed there, got there about the same time. 
Uh, we kind of thought it was Jacqueline DeWalby right away. It was such a high-profile case. Um, and we did know that she had that her bedspread was with her. And uh, that's the first. The body was unrecognizable. A lot of decay was... Uh, but because of the bedspread, we thought right away it was her. You know, I remember her panties were found to the side. There was a rope wrapped around her. The bedspread. We didn't. Our job as detectives was to secure the scene at that point. We then notified Blue Island or Midlothian, saying, "Hey, we think we have your body." Uh, we waited that for them to come. Uh, there was a small task force at that time consisting of the state police and Midlothian. Uh, They came and then requested the Illinois State Police Crime Scene Services. Now, that took a while to come because there's only like several stations throughout the state and they respond wherever their area is. So by the time you call, sometimes it'd take 20 minutes, sometimes it'd take an hour, you know. Uh, And then they come and they're the professionals in recovering evidence, the CSIs. The officers radioed Blue Island Police Chief Paul Greaves and alerted him that a body had been found. When other officers arrived at the scene, one of the apartment occupants said that a female police officer was so overcome with emotion at the sight of the little body that she began to cry. You know, plus we're, you know, you got Midlothian and you got Robbins, you have other towns in between. We're Blue Island and, you know, why would you pick that? Uh, We think the way the body was situated that whoever laid it there because it was looked like it was placed rather than just dumped. And we think that somebody wanted it, that body found. Blue Island Police Chief Paul Grease made a statement to the press and said that the decomposed body was that of a white female who appeared to be 9 to 10 years old. The foul smell that had been lurking around the apartment block for several days was the smell of human decomposition. I smelled it yesterday and I smelled it today. It was a dead smell, said Patrick Allen, another occupant of the Riverside apartment block. While the search for Jacqueline had been extensive, the area where the body was discovered had not been searched. As darkness fell onto the apartment block, police searched the area armed with flashlights while concerned citizens looked on, and reporters and photographers desperately tried to get a glimpse of something for their next headline. Because of the flurry of the commotion, Blue Island Police Chief Paul Greaves ordered that the small body be covered with a sheet. By the time the crime scene uh, investigator got there, the media had started to show up and then it turns into a circus, you know, because now everyone's coming out of the apartment to see what the media's there for. We had, uh, at le- the good thing is we had time to court and set up the uh, designated area and cordon them off further back, not allow them to be right on top of our crime scene. It was a very high-profile case from that Saturday on. It was on the news every day. The case still going on about the missing Jacqueline, and she was just such a pretty little girl. Uh, you know, they'd show that picture. It just tore your hearts out that this little thing was missing. And I think it was more of grief. You know, the, the community was so sad that this poor little girl had been murdered, and she was found in, in our town. Uh, I don't think anyone had panics about, oh, there's a murderer loose. I don't know why, but it, it just seemed to me it was more of a grief. 
The task force requested Hayden Baldwin, the crime scene technician who'd been processing the Dwallaby house, to come to the scene. Baldwin photographed the area. The verge of the asphalt bordered by weeds, leading to a wooded area behind the dumpsters at the back of the Islander apartment blocks. It was starting to get dark and the light was fading. The small body was wrapped in a multicoloured quilt. It was positioned parallel to the parking lot. The head was pointing east and the feet were towards the west. The body was uncovered from the upper torso up. A rope was wrapped around the decedent's neck. The small body was heavily decomposed. The area was heavily infested with flies. The combined presence of the dumpsters, the trees, the weeds, the canal and a corpse that had been wrapped in a quilt in humid weather meant the decomposition had been accelerated by maggots and heat. There were no visible shoe prints leading from the car park to the body. The area behind the body was not checked for footprints. On the ground, about a foot away from the victim's feet, were a pair of white cotton underwear. Baldwin carefully placed the underwear into an evidence bag and removed it from the scene to conduct testing in the hopes that DNA from the suspect would be retrieved. While it could not be medically determined whether Jacqueline had been sexually assaulted, the fact that her underwear had been removed is indicative that she possibly was. The small body was then lifted into an ambulance and transported to St Francis Hospital in Blue Island before being taken to the Cook County Medical Examiner's Office for identification and for a cause of death to be determined. While the body had not yet been identified, it was noted that it had been wrapped in a purple and white blanket and dressed in matching pyjamas that looked like the blanket and pyjamas that Jacqueline's parents had described. Police Captain John Bitten made a comment to the Daily Chronicle newspaper that they were 90% sure that the body was that of Jacqueline. The search for evidence continued at the Islander Apartments. It's it, it like I said, it's a very large comp apartment complex. There's a fire station right there. Uh, it's it had changed uh, where it had been at one time predominantly Caucasian. It had changed and we were starting to have like drug dealings and things like that going on in the apartments. Uh, changed mostly African American. But I mean, it's not like we were having shootings there or any type, like it was all out wars out there. It was nothing like that. It wasn't like a housing project. You know, there was still a lot of good people in there. So you have a a, a series of apartments. It's a pretty big complex. You have a parking lot that's in the rear of the complex. Parking lot's probably, oh, I'd say 40, 50 feet wide because it's, you could have cars parked right next to the, right behind the apartments, you have a space, and then there's cars parked along the edge, which would be called a prairie. Uh, there were dumpsters back there, and then there's maybe 100 yards, and then there's the canal. Now you get a little into the, past the dumpsters, it gets pretty thick and wooded, but uh, the body was maybe five to 10 feet, just basically behind the dumpsters. 
Midlothian Police were assisted by Blue Island Police, Crestwood Police, Dixmoor Police, the FBI and the Illinois State Police. Investigators were armed with a sieve and metal trowels as they combed through the litter-infested area where Jacqueline's body had been disposed of. They had been searching for any semblance of evidence or Jacqueline's gold cross earrings that she'd been wearing when she vanished. The scene was covered with a tent after an hour and ten minutes. It would be the following morning before the crime scene technicians would have completed processing the scene. We were, we got, Doug Hoagland and myself got invited to the task force from that point on. We we sat down, we had a big meeting. We have, there's, Blue Island has a fire department. It's maybe 50 yards from where the body was located. So we had a meeting in the fire department. We were brought up to speed on the investigation. And then uh, we were actively involved with it from that point on. Police canvassed the area surrounding the apartments and inquired with residents as to whether they had seen or heard anything out of the ordinary over the past couple of days. They additionally poured through application records from the Islander apartments to try and determine if there were any kind of connections between the residents there and Jacqueline or any member of her family. According to five residents, they had seen unfamiliar people or vehicles in the vicinity of where Jacqueline's body had been discovered. However... None of the descriptions matched either Cynthia or David or their vehicles. By the next morning, September 15th, the body had been identified via dental records as Jacqueline DeWallaby. It was initially believed from the appearance of the body that she'd been brutally bludgeoned over the head, but the Cook County Medical Examiner, Dr Robert Stein, reported that it had been caused by advanced decomposition. The autopsy read in part The body is almost completely covered with maggots, mostly in the head and neck area. Further examination of the head shows that it is almost completely disarticulated at the level of the third cervical vertebrae. An x-ray showed no presence of foreign bodies such as bullets and no broken bones. It was impossible to tell if there were any bruises or ligature marks because of how decomposed the body was. A length of rope had been wrapped circumferentially around Jacqueline's neck twice, leading the pathologist to mark the cause of death as asphyxiation. There were no knots or nooses made in the rope. It had been wound around her neck and draped across the length of her body, resting between her legs. There was no evidence of head trauma. The medical examiner could not determine with certainty whether Jacqueline had been sexually molested or not. The state of decomposition made that impossible. While an exact time of death could not be determined, Dr. Robert Stein estimated that she'd been dead for a number of days and was most likely killed early Saturday morning, shortly after she disappeared. Hayden Baldwin attended the autopsy and collected samples for the crime lab. These included the nightgown Jacqueline had been wearing, the bedspread, the rope, head hair recovered from the body during the autopsy, hair recovered from the rope during the autopsy, Jacqueline's fingernail clippings, swabs, and palm prints. We didn't even know the true cause of death. We thought it, it was listed as strangulation because of the rope, but the body was so decomposed, there's a bone in the throat that's usually broken in a strangulation case. This wasn't. 
but it was listed as that because of the position of the rope. We just want to take a moment to thank our sponsor for this episode, BetterHelp. At the moment, there's so many of us who are going through difficult times. BetterHelp is a professional counselling service that's available online. They'll assess your needs and match you with a licensed professional therapist. You can access private sessions with your therapist on a video or phone call. You can also message your therapist at any time that you need to. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counselling and there is financial aid available. You won't have to sit in a waiting room and you aren't limited to the therapist in your area. This means that you can speak with someone who has a specialised experience with the issues you're dealing with. BetterHelp is not a crisis line, so if you require urgent medical help, please contact emergency services. We want you to start living a happier life today. You'll get 10% off your first month by going to betterhelp.com forward slash shattered. Over 1 million people have taken charge of their mental health with BetterHelp. You can read their testimonials that are posted on their website daily. Try our sponsor, BetterHelp, at betterhelp.com forward slash shattered. Outside the Dwallaby home, neighbours gathered in the street. They spoke in hushed tones about the grisly discovery. Doris Christensen, whose son, Eric, was a second-grade classmate of Jacqueline, wept as she recollected that Jacqueline was the friendliest and sweetest little girl that she had ever met. News of the grisly discovery swept through Midlothian like a tidal wave. Children that could once be spotted playing in their front yards were now noticeably absent. Children that either walked to school or got the school bus were now driven to and from school by their concerned parents. Children weren't even allowed to attend sleepovers. Fear that a child killer was lurking among Midlothian citizens quivered in the air, and everybody feared that their child would become the next Jacqueline de Wallaby. According to one local woman named Leela Ritz, a number of children had trouble falling asleep at night and questioned their parents whether they would be kidnapped as well, while one child reportedly slept with a stick out of fear of being snatched. Ralph Mechik rang David to tell him that Jacqueline's cause of death was strangulation. Wanting to spare Cynthia any further pain, David decided he would keep this information to himself. Extra care was taken at Central Park School, where Jacqueline was a student. Letters were sent out to parents enrolled in Midlothian School District 143, informing them of the supper services and counselling that would be available to all students and parents. One junior high class wrote essays about how the incident had made them feel. A number of teachers had to dispel rumours that were circulating and correct false information that children had heard. Meanwhile, a 24-hour hotline was implemented for any parents who felt as though they, or their child, needed help in coping with their emotions. In fact, community counselling services in Midlothian offered up free services over the weekend. Catherine, a childhood friend of Jacqueline, recalled what it was like after they heard the news. I didn't go to the funeral. I did not, I was not exposed to the media My parents were very protective. 
We, as kids, the school, we planted a tree for her. As it was planted, we all went around the tree the whole. It was just in the beginning of second grade. We all, our music teacher wrote a song. I think he wrote it. It might be a song that's out there. I don't know. <laughs> um, it's called Everybody's Got to Grow. And we all sang it holding hands around the tree when it was planted. And uh, I, I wonder if it's still there at our elementary school. It was there for a long time if it's not there any longer. It became a large tree, so. I don't remember any kind of like security changes or, you know, at that young age, we were just so matter of fact. And I remember crying, I remember being sad, I remember being scared at night thinking it can happen. So when she did pass away, it was hard for us to understand. We were sad and confused. Uh, my parents, I'd say, protected me from a lot of the information. We knew she was taken and that she wasn't alive. We didn't know the details. As I aged, I looked into her details of her death and I read a, that book, Gone in the Night, in my uh, early 20s and revisited it not too long after. Um, so it was quite, quite sad. It's so, it's so bizarre thinking that I am a parent of children at that age now. I've never really kind of put that together and it's, it makes this all more surreal. How many times have you as a mom moved your child from the couch to their bedroom? So if they're not making any sound, very easily somebody can walk in and out. Um, I, I would definitely say it's, it's molded me as a mother in some ways, like it has affected my, you know, I think of that. Um, I make sure my kids, you know, windows are locked or, um, you know, I prefer them to be in a bedroom that's not on the first floor. Like it is a reality. I don't let it take over and whatever, but it's a clear reminder that some things are out of your control no matter what you do or where you live. I think about her all the time. David's twin sister, Rose, was recommended a defense attorney by a cop that he knew, Ralph Metchik. While David was still being interrogated on the day that Jacqueline's body was found, Rose arranged for Metchik to represent him. Rose's husband, John, and David's mother, Anne, told him that night that he needed a lawyer because the police were trying to blame him. David agreed. En route to Metchik's office, located in downtown Chicago the next morning, Cynthia had become so overcome by her emotions that the car needed to be pulled over several times for her to vomit. David consulted with Ralph Metchik while Cynthia spoke with another lawyer at the firm, Lawrence Hyman. Metchik advised them to hire separate lawyers in case Cynthia was arrested they were quoted between $30,000 to $40,000, plus expenses for the representation, and a $6,000 retainer would be needed in two days' time. The Dwallabies never had any experience with defence attorneys before, so they were not in the right state of mind to argue, so they agreed to hire Mechik and Tymon. Before they left, Ralph Mechik told them, 
that he could relate to their predicament. He compared it to his tax problem and claimed that he too had been set up. He told David that he could expect to be arrested. Following the identification of the body and increased pressure from the police, both Cynthia and David hired attorneys who reportedly advised them not to answer any more questions from investigators. Family felt that they had told investigators everything that they knew and could elaborate no further unless any new evidence was to arise. They had given blood and urine samples and had given permission to take whatever family medical records they may have required. They had additionally granted investigators access to their home for the entire five days that Jacqueline was missing. The Fifth Amendment allows American citizens to decline to answer any questions that could potentially incriminate them, and the Dwallabies were well within their rights to plead the Fifth. Less than one week ago, life was good for the Dwallaby family. They worked together as a team to provide the best life possible for their children. And now, their daughter was dead, and they had fallen under an unwarranted cloud of suspicion and were seeking legal help. David Leader said, The night my daughter was found, I was under a third-degree interrogation. I had no idea until eight o'clock that night that my daughter was found dead, and it was on the five o'clock news. I'm the last person in Chicago to find out about Jacqueline, and they'd given me a promise that I would be the first to know. It's no wonder I got an attorney. Am I supposed to trust them after that? Unable to come up with any other suspects, police focused their attention on Cynthia and David as lead suspects in their daughter's murder. A spokesman for the Illinois Children and Family Services Department said that the family had absolutely no record of child abuse incidents. But nevertheless, investigators considered them pleading the Fifth Amendment as suspicious. In fact, just days after Jacqueline's body was discovered, investigators started to claim to local newspapers that Cynthia and David were hampering the investigation. Ralph Metchik was quick to say that the family were in mourning. Within the space of one day, the body of their daughter had been discovered and they were now being made out to be uncooperative in the search for her killer and even being looked at through suspicious eyes. Mechik said, All we know is the family is in mourning and they want the killer caught. The Dwallabies barely had the chance to grieve for their daughter before they had to ensure they had legal aid. They now had to plan their daughter's funeral. The funeral home in charge of Jacqueline's funeral was part owned by the mayor of Blue Island, Donald E. Polokin who happened to be a friend of Chief Greaves. It was the mayor who secured Greaves' position as chief after he was elected. Cynthia wanted to be with Jacqueline at the funeral home, but the funeral director said that it should be a closed casket because of the condition of Jacqueline's body. Cynthia's mother Mary had been tasked with selecting items to be buried with Jacqueline in her coffin. She picked out some mini mouse jewellery that Jacqueline had picked out herself and purchased with her own pocket money. Several pictures of the family, a doll that Jacqueline had kept since she was a toddler, and Purry Furry, which was Jacqueline's favourite teddy, a stuffed cat. 
They wanted Jacqueline to wear her favourite dress. The Christmas dress she had given Michelle the night she was taken. The very same dress Jacqueline had worn to the father-daughter dance the year beforehand. Body was not in the condition to be dressed, but Mary sent the dress and some red and white tights to be buried with her. The wake was held on September 16th. Just a week earlier, the Dwallabies had kissed their daughter goodnight for the last time, and now they were denied the chance to say goodbye. That morning, a phone call had been made to the house, threatening to kill David. Fearing for his life, he donned a bulletproof vest beneath his shirt as he carried his daughter's coffin to her final resting place. The following day, over 200 mourners gathered at St. Christopher's Church in Midlothian to bid farewell to Jacqueline, who was carried into the church in a dainty white casket. Outside of the church, television cameras and photographers were positioned on the sidewalks, hoping to catch a glimpse of Cynthia or David. Pastor Daniel Brady conducted the eulogy and said, As we sit here, each of us is troubled by the death of this little girl. We know she is safe in God's hands, but we're still shocked. We've been made numb. There really are no words, no answers. All we can do is put our arms around each other and know that we are not alone. None of us has to worry about Jacqueline because where she has gone, there is no pain. Cynthia had written a letter to Jacqueline which was buried with her. It read, Dear Jacqueline, I knew when you grew up, you wanted to be a cheerleader. You wanted to be a mother and be married. I loved you for this. You were a great reader and you wrote your name and letters beautifully. I loved you because you always wanted to wear a dress or skirt to school. You were a beautiful roller skater and bike rider. You were friends with everybody and I loved you for that. You were a good-hearted, sweet, loving, precious angel. I liked it when you dressed up with the dress clothes. Little Davy loved to pretend with you. You taught him well. He will always know you in his heart and we will tell him more about you when he's old enough to understand. Davy looked up to you, Jacqueline, and he always will. Jacqueline, I wish you could come to us and tell us you're okay and safe and loved. We were so sad when we couldn't find you and even sadder when you left us for God. Our hearts cried out to you. We want you to know that we will be with you again in heaven and we are no longer afraid to die. We know you will be there waiting for us with open arms. Our hearts ache out of love for you. Our hearts cried for you every single day. I'm still aching inside because I miss my little girl and want her back. So if you can somehow give yourself back to me in any way, like my dreams, I will be a total peace in my heart. I will do my best. You're my angel. I know you like that movie, Date with an Angel. You were that angel sent up to God for eternal peace. I love you and miss you so very much. Words cannot express, I will never give up on you, Jacqueline. I'm sorry this happened to you. You will still be a cheerleader and anything else you ever wanted to be in life in my heart. My love for you just grows and grows. 
Love you, Daddy, Mommy, and Davy. Following the emotional service, Jacqueline was buried in the historic St. Mary Cemetery in Evergreen Park. Her headstone reads, God bless our precious angel. Jacqueline is forever seven years old. Her grave is surrounded by men and women who live to a ripe old age and live to have children and even grandchildren of their own. A number of the mourners who had attended the funeral hadn't known Jacqueline or her family personally, but her death had evoked deep feelings in people across the nation. One local, Kim Bukema, spoke with the Southtown Star and said, After you hear so much, you kind of get to know the person. The evening before Jacqueline was laid to rest, investigators continued to canvass the Islander apartments. They had a printed list of questions to go through when they spoke to residents and asked about strange cars in the area between the September 9th and 12th. You know, we did the interviews. We did the canvas of the apartments within the next couple of days. I think that Friday, it was the Friday, when I located Everett Mann. And Everett Mann was the bus driver who was, uh, he was a married guy. He lived in the apartments, but he was coming home from a date. And uh, he said he saw a blue Chevy. I don't know if it was a Chevelle or a Malibu. I think it was a Malibu. But Everett Mann says it was that Friday night. It was maybe 2 in the morning, 3 in the morning. He said he saw it pulling out of the parking lot. How do you know it was a Malibu or Chevelle? Whatever it was. How do you know it was what type of car it was? Well, I was in the Army, and in the Army, my sergeant had the exact same car. Here's my sergeant's name. We looked him up. Yeah, back then I did have that that kind of car. Uh, we showed him, I showed him a photo array because we had a couple made up. As, as we're doing this canvas, anyone would have saw something. And he says, you know, he points to David DeWalby and he says, you know, the guy I didn't see real good, but he looked something like this. Everett Mann claimed that he saw a dark-coloured car around 2am on Saturday, September 10th, in the car park, near the middle dumpster, close to where Jacqueline would be found four days later. Mann said he thought he saw the driver's side profile and said it seemed like the driver was a Caucasian male with a large, straight nose. Now the investigator's suspicions were substantiated by a potential witness that placed Jacqueline's father at the scene of the crime, or so it seemed. Because the body had been found in Blue Island, Chief Greaves was the automatic head of the investigation, but he submitted to McDivitt, who would run the task force from Midlothian, with Greaves on the team. Before the casket was taken to the cemetery, Chief Greaves asked Mayor Pelequin to open it and check what the Dwallabies had put inside. Jacqueline's favourite dress was draped over her body, and she had her teddy, family photos letter and jewellery but nothing that would further the police's investigation Greaves said that he didn't understand why Jacqueline's parents were hesitant to speak with the police he said I think if I were the Dwallabies I'd be sitting outside the door of the police station I can't imagine anything you could do that would offend me I'd say look I understand that you consider me a suspect but I didn't do it I'll cooperate in any way I can 
but I want to find out who did this. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Shattered Window. The Shattered Window is a completely independent podcast paid for out of our own pockets. If you'd like to support the show in return for loads of bonus content, behind the scenes, merch and more, then please check out The Shattered Window on Patreon. The link is in the show notes. Also, make sure you visit us at theshatteredwindow.com for more information about this episode and follow us on social media to keep up to date with the case and any developments. If you enjoy The Shattered Window, it would mean the world if you left us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening. Ratings and reviews are an easy way to support a show that you enjoy and can help us reach new listeners. Once again, thank you for listening, and until next time, take care of yourselves, stay safe, and have an amazing week.